You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. Turn to the book of Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue our studies, uh, study of Colossians. And as we've walked through this book, we have noticed, we've taken note, that Paul begins with celebrating the, the, the evidence of the gospel among the Colossian community. And he says, Your evidence, the evidence the gospel has taken root is because you have a reputation for loving one another really well. And then he slides over into that, 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 uh, that those passages of high Christology in, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where he celebrates the point of it all, which is the, magnimi- the, 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 the magnanimous uh, victory and presence of Christ holding all things together. And it's really important for us to remember from time to time that, um, that, that as is understandable, when a lot of us came to Christ, what we were doing is we were responding to a message. But, but where faith and the work of the Spirit come in is that we probably understood, or some of us understood, or we grew to understand afterwards, that it wasn't just the message that changed us. It was the message was a message about an event. And that event was the resurrection of Jesus and the conquering of sin and the bringing together of the human and divine. And so we always have to remember that our faith and our salvation doesn't rest on the way the message has been communicated or the way we understand it. It's that ultimately we're not saved by information. We're saved because an event that took place. And the event was the resurrection of the Son of God. And, and Paul celebrates the, 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 the total and victorious nature of that reconciliation work of Christ. That is the thing that changes and transforms us and saves us, not that we that we affirm bits of doctrine that's been codified throughout the years based on the event. That's fine if it helps us understand the event. I'm not against that. But what I'm saying, we always have to be reminded that ultimately our faith is not in the information or the ideology. Our faith is in the event. The question is more than what do you believe. The question is how are you responding to the living Christ on a daily basis? basis. That's the only kind of faith that can really transform and be meaningful for us in this life. And so we looked at how that revelation is is intended to remind the Colossians that there's a particular way of life when we follow the risen Jesus, and there's a way of life that we pursue, and there's a way of life that we reject. And we talked last week about kind of the rejection part where Paul makes this list of sexual sins. And he says, because you have taken off the old self and put on the new self, these are the behaviors you have to rid yourself from. And in fact, he says, these aren't a part of who you are anymore. These were a part of who you were before the revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory. But now that you understand, that is no longer who you are. And we talked about the fact that in general, if you look at those words, those those words of, uh, of, of what we could call sexual sin, they're, they're actually about sins of abuse and exploitation. It, it is not about the acts within themselves. It's not about the biological things that happen to us when we indulge in illicit sexual behavior. It is about the impulse behind it, which is to exploit and to abuse other people in the indulgence of our own lust. And so Paul's saying, now that you've put on the new self, this should not be characterized of your life. And there's about five different terms that he uses and stacks on top of one another to emphasize this reality. 
Now, this week, as we projected last week, he goes in the other direction. So last week, we could say was the, uh, the, the uh, negative exhortation, and this week is the flip side of the coin, and it's kind of a more pro- proactive, positive exhortation. Like, now that you see a picture of what we're supposed to take off and remove like clothes, uh, and, and we put on Christ, what does the atmosphere of our life, what, what life, what should it be progressively looking like? And we're going to get a glimpse of that, where Paul is going to talk about what is the fruit of the Spirit of putting on the new self, the one that is living from the revelation that I am one with God because Christ exists within me as my hope of glory. How now should we live? And Paul is going to begin to explain that. He's going to describe what that life looks like, and we're going to look at that this morning. But then he's going to go on and to explain, okay, now let's get practical. It's not enough that we have a doctrine. It's not enough that you've been exhorted what it's supposed to look like. Now Paul is going to, in the next coming weeks, we're going to shift to the third flow of the letter of Colossians, which is, now in light of all of this, let's apply this truth to what would have been the family condition of the Colossians back during uh, the first century. And then he says, okay, let's apply it to the relationships in your home. And then he's going to say, now let's apply it to our socioeconomic relationships. And now let's apply it to practical matters of community conflict with, that exists within any Christian community. So he's, gonna, he's going from the doctrinal down to the practical living. And so we're right in the middle of that transition. So this is the part where he is, he is declaring and celebrating what it looks like, what the atmosphere of our life looks like when we, um, when we put on Christ. And so that's in Colossians 3, um, verses 12 through 14. And let's just take a minute to read this. And we're going to kind of walk through this short paragraph this morning. Um, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So here we have this vision. Because the Colossians have died with Christ, they should let go of the lower life of sin, and because they have been raised with Christ, they should clothe themselves with the higher life of love. This is what, um, this is what uh, Paul is saying. And I, and I think that comparison is really important because the contrast in the Bible isn't between sin and non-sin. But for some reason, that's kind of the way we construct the conversation about being saved from our sins. Don't do these sins because that'll cause you to be distant from God. But if you stop doing those sins and you do these virtues, that'll allow you to experience being closer to God, um, so on and so forth. And so we think that uh, the opposite of sinning is not sinning. Now, this becomes very important because as you can tell here in this community, we are open to growing and learning and allowing our paradigms to shift just a little bit. Now, that shifting can be very exciting as it brings new possibilities for living and understanding, but it can also be uncomfortable because it feels disruptive because we want to figure out the answer and camp out at the ideology. And that's when the ideology becomes an idol. 
We are, we, we are not called to be a people uh, who camp out at ideology. We're supposed to be a people who, like in Israel of old, are willing to follow the pillar of uh, 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 the cloud by day and the fire by night. We, we, we move. We're following God, not ideas about God. And so when we talk about this idea of sin, it's important for us to, well, one of the paradigm shifts that has to happen is the opposite of sin is not not sinning. And the truth is, that's a very easy way to live. It's not that complicated. All you have to do is find the group that believes like you, looks like you, thinks like you, follow their rules, because those rules will be easier for you to follow, because they're homogenous, that you, you have lots of agreement. But if the opposite of sin is it not sin, then what is it? Well, what I'm going to submit to you, what we see in the New Testament, both in Jesus and in the letters of Paul, is the opposite of a life of sin is a life of love. That's what it looks like. So the idea that the point is to stop doing bad things and do good things really misses the mark. All that, all that kind of system is good for is for helping my ego feel better. But the truth is, the reason why we're delivered from sin is not so that we can high-five one another and say, woo, we're holy people now, like Swiss cheese. Holy, anyway. Uh, (laughs) uh, And high-five one another. No, 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 the point of being free from sin is so that I am now free from all the obstacles of love. That delivers me from the focal point of my own ego so I can begin to live an expansive life that is in keeping with the spirit of the living Christ, which the goal then is to learn how to be a proactively loving person. And so that's what Paul is articulating is when we take off the old and we replace it with the new, that new is an atmosphere of love and has very specific ways that it works itself out in our homes and in our communities. Now, one of the important points in this is, is Colossians 12a. And notice what he says as the intro, as he turns to this particular focus of this part of the letter, as he's changing into this new paragraph. He says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Now, again, this is important. I know it's small and subtle, and we can read over it very fast. But whenever you look at the ethical exhortations of Paul, what you will see is this. He is not grounding those ethical exhortations in the principles of what is right and wrong. He is grounding those ethical exhortations in a revelation of their identity. And that is absolutely, incredibly important because the life of the, 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 the life of faith that is expounded, that, that, that we see in the life of Christ and is expounded upon in the New Testament is first and foremost a revelation of your identity. And, and then the, the crux of our faith, the energy, the, the, the momentum and, and the, uh, the power in our faith comes from recognizing we've been given really as a gift, a new identity. That identity has a different set of behaviors that is connected to it, but the, the, the goal isn't to try to change our behavior, but to rest in the revelation of who we have become because of the free gift of the gospel. And what Paul says, so Paul begins his exhortation with reminding them, you are doing this as God's chosen ones, as his holy ones, and as is those who are dearly beloved by him. 
God has chosen them. God is the one who has made them holy through the indwelling of his holy presence. Look, this whole letter itself, the fact that he's calling them saints at the beginning of the letter and then reminding them here that they are considered his holy ones, and yet he's writing a letter to help uh, 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 correct sinful beliefs and behaviors in their midst. Therefore, being holy doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. Otherwise, what Paul's doing here is a blatant contradiction. He calls them saints and he calls them holy. And then he says, I need to write these things to encourage you to make some choices that are more in keeping with your identity. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So the idea of holy, the holy means separate. It doesn't mean pure as a white driven snow, although there is some connotations to the innocence that happens because we've been washed in the blood of Christ. That's a different sermon and a different topic. But my point here is holiness, and we sing about it. You are holy because Christ is present in you. Not because you get everything perfect, not because you do everything right, but because the resurrected Christ is now living in you as your hope of glory. His presence is what makes you holy. In religion... When holy things touch unholy things, they become unholy. In Christ, when a holy thing touches an unholy thing, the unholy becomes holy. It works just the opposite in that way. And so, and so my point is, Paul is telling them they're supposed to behave this way, not by white-knuckling it and gritting their teeth and, and extending a lot of discipline, but they live this way by understanding the nature of the God to, uh, that has called them and by understanding the mystery of the miracle of the gospel, which says your identity has been transformed. You've been recreated as the new humanity. So God has chosen them. God has made them holy through the indwelling of his holy presence. And God has dearly loved them as opposed to their choosing God. They're working to make themselves morally holy and them try striving to maintain behavior that makes them lovable. My friend, that is not the easy yoke that you're called to. God loves you. Come to him free of grace and work really hard to maintain your good position. Unfortunately, that's how most of us understand the Christian religious life and the life of discipleship. That is not what we're doing. In discipleship, we are learning how to live from the new identity in Christ that we have been given. We're not trying to become better versions of ourselves, but live from the revelation of what God has done. Now, if you'll look, and you notice there in verse uh, 14 at the very end, he summarizes it with uh, the statement, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So as we walk through this paragraph, what I want us to remember is that when we look at 14, we see what the guiding overall idea here. The guiding idea in this paragraph is that love brings these virtues together and love produces the fruit of unity. Love brings the virtues together and love is the thing that produces the fruit of unity. Now this becomes very, very important because there's a lot of... The idea that we can be the source of some sort of radical social change Number one, might be birth of God. It might be very much a birth of the Spirit calling you to spend your life in a worthy cause. And I believe in that idea 100%. The problem is now with the way in which we've constructed society, and honestly, I hate to sound like an old man, but particularly with the ubiquitous nature of the way we relate via social media, 
now sometimes a calling to make some sort of change isn't birth in, a, in the compassion and passion of our heart, but in a desire to project a certain image of ourselves. So it's called virtue signaling. And when we get into virtue signaling, it means that we're trying to be identified by particular social movements or ideologies, and we're mainly committed to those because of what we hope that projects to the people outside who are interpreting us. That, that, that is about the ego. That is still ego propping up. That is still rooted in pride. Real change comes, as we'll see, when we ache for the plight of others and we're willing to suffer with them. But not suffering and making statements from the comfortable place of my computer, that's not engaging in social change. That's not engaging in ministry or mission or anything. It's a temporary moment where I get to virtue signal to everyone else and hopefully get enough likes to go to bed that night feeling pretty good about myself because of all the people that recognize what a good moral person I am, right? And so, and so we, have to, we have to understand that people now believe that they're doing something new by yelling about the former. As long as I'm angry about what was before and I'm a voice for change, then therefore I care about change and movement. And even we talk a little bit, because I think we need to talk about it more, the ex-evangelical movement. And I have tried to say things in the previous week that affirm people who are part of the ex-evangelical movement. But now I wanna say something a little bit on the other side. Legitimate resentment is just as damaging to your mind and body as illegitimate resentment. And so the problem with the ex-evangelical movement is it's gaining speed and momentum and unity around collective resentment. That will never lead to a healthy, holistic way of living. We cannot bond around our mutual resentment. We have to bind ourselves and unify ourselves around our experience of the beauty of the risen Christ. That's what has to drive our vision in moving forward. My friends, dissent and resentment merely create a new tyrant. Only the work of love can create unity. Love precedes and sustains unity. The work is love, the fruit is unity. So as a Christian community, we're not here working for unity, we're here working for love which ironically might mean that there's a potential for disunity because we don't agree on all the same things. We don't agree on all the same politics. We don't agree on all the same theology. We don't agree on how to understand all the complexities of our world. And yet we're trying to create a community where we'll still be present to love and support one another because unity is the fruit. It's not the work. The work is love. The work is love. If we make unity the work, then we are allowing the tail to wag the dog. This will make unity the goal and thus the false idol. We will only, we will have unity only according to the limits of our love. Whereas if we pursue limitless love, unity will quietly become present among us. Unity is the fruit of the work of love. We don't work for unity. We work for love. And if we don't get this, then we're in trouble because what happens to Christian communities and denominations is pretty soon unity equals agreement. My friends, unity does not equal agreement. 
And if I seek unity only with those I agree, I've deceived myself. I've done the easy thing of, 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 of continuing to occupy homogenous space so it's all the same. So there's not offense and there's not challenge and I don't have to get better at articulating my convictions nor do I have to get better at listening to someone else articulate theirs. This is a false, false pseudo unity that I would say is not unity at all. It's just conformity. It's just conformity to some outward standard that we've created. That is not unity. Unity happens when I can sit with a brother and a, or a sister whose lifestyle choices or theology I disagree with or don't understand and still recognize my call to take up the basin of the towel and wash their feet. With the same tenderness and compassion with which I wash the feet of those people who agree with me and are easier for me. This is what we're being engaged with. I saw a meme the other day, so I've talked down on social media. I'll say something positive. The real test of Christianity isn't just loving Jesus, it's loving Judas. It's recognizing that on that night when Jesus took up the basin and the towel, there were devoted followers, but there were also someone there who was gonna betray him, someone there who was going to, um, oops, who was gonna deny him, and someone there who was gonna doubt them, doubt him. And yet he washed the feet of everyone just the same. So if we're gonna say that, I wrote this in here, and I wish I hadn't because now I'm already messed up. I just wrote under my title, my notes, what is love? But now I'm going dun, 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 Anyway, I'm not going to move beyond that. Don't worry. What is love? And this is important. What do we talk about when we talk about God's love? And this is where I want to get a little narrow, a little close in just a little bit here. Because I like to talk about God's love. I personally believe it is the most profound, miraculous, transformative force in the universe. And so I'm happy to celebrate it. I see the gospel as an articulation and expansion of God's love. But we gotta take just a moment from time to time to hone in on what we're talking about when we talk about God's agape love. Because love is a word that can easily slip into meaninglessness, okay? I might say I love my wife, I love my daughter, I love my family, I love my friends, and I love my dog. Not necessarily in that order either. And I, uh, I love pizza, and I like some Chinese food, and I really love uh, pho. And, uh, and I don't like all, I, I like egg rolls, but I love the ones that get a really good scald on them and they're fresh. I mean, we, we just throw this word around all the time. And it's important that when we talk about love, I think it's inclusive of affections and so forth, but we're talking about God's love as something way beyond the sphere of emotion and sentimentality. And I'm not gonna take too much time on this. You can either search the Google or to be honest, I haven't had a Reuben in a long time. Um, but one of the ways that we understand and conceptualize God's love as we look at the story of the Bible is it's almost impossible to understand what the Bible's talking about in God's love without understanding the power of covenant. So when we talk about love, we're talking about God choosing to, to act in covenant faithfulness to his people. That means that his covenant faith, faithfulness is what creates the security of that relationship, not the ebbing and flowing of our behavior and our beliefs and our understanding. 
See, that's not very secure if I have to be just right in order to enjoy uh, being a recipient of God's love. But God's love is demonstrated in his faithfulness to us beyond our behavior and beliefs. But his faithfulness, his commitment to us is rooted in our being, not in our beliefs, not in our behavior, but in our very being. Because we are at some level even though it may be dimmed, nonetheless a reflection of him because we have been made in his image. So love is God's, God's love is his covenant commitment to be with us and to work for us so that we flourish in being conformed to the image of Jesus. God's love in his, is his covenant commitment to be with us and to work for us so that we flourish in being conformed to the image of Jesus. And that becomes really important because ultimately, the, when we, although we talk about love and kindness, the goal of participating in this community is not simply to learn how to be more nice. My hope and prayer is that our involvement in this community is that we're trained to progress in Christ-likeness because that's the goal, not being nice people not being conviction people, not being people who stand for the truth, but being people who manifest the very real presence of the living Christ because we are being conformed to the image of the Son. This is what Paul celebrates in Romans 8, right? Um, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to Christ Jesus. And, and, and if you read the rest of the paragraph, to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's how love is defined. That's how goodness is understood. Our love for others then in taking that understanding is our commitment to be with them and work for them. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go 90s youth pastor here. Everybody repeat after me the phrase with them and for them, okay? It is, it is our commitment to be with them and work for them so that they can flourish in being conformed to the image of Christ. Another way of saying is love is our commitment to one another expressed as presence and advocacy in our journey toward Christ likeness. Love is our commitment to one another both in presence and in advocacy. I'm gonna be present with you and I'm gonna advocate for you in our mutual journey toward Christ likeness. Because my friends, one of the ways and we rethink maybe a more faithfully biblical vision of how we articulate the gospel is to remember there is no salvation in Christ apart from being progressively transformed into the image of Christ. If the, the religious goal is to make sure you get to heaven. That's not the scriptural goal. In the scripture, the goal is salvation by grace so that you can be transformed into the image of Christ. That's what salvation looks like. And that begins right now, today, this afternoon. So then he begins to list these virtues. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Five lists existed in the list before, and there's five virtues here. Now, I do want to take a moment and walk through these virtues because Paul does something here that I think is really powerful. <coughs> Paul utilizes words, sometimes in an awkward way, whose root meaning in the Greek is charis, which is the word from which we get grace. 
So in just a minute, you'll take a look where forgiveness sounds like forgiveness, but really he didn't use the common term for forgiveness. He uses a term that is rooted in the root word of grace. And so he does that throughout this list. So just like lust is kind of expanded on multiple metaphors in the previous list, we talked about that last week. So too, uh, this idea of love within the community is then expanded on this multiple layers of metaphors so we get a picture of what this looks like. We tend to read the Bible mostly as my story, so we might miss the fact that these are not simply virtues for individuals. This is a picture of what a Christ community should look like. True of Christ community church, but it's true of any Christ community. Number one, he says compassion. Now this word is an interesting word because it's actually a word that's made up of two different words, okay? And, um, and these two uh, different words is one of them means um, mercy and the other one means uh, bowels or entrails. Well, that's a kind of a strange etymology for a word. So literally, literally, when he says compassion, this literal translation of this word would be bowels of mercy or guts of mercy, if you want to. Innards of grace uh, is what this would literally be. Now, the reason why they did this is because they recognize in their language that emotions often have a physiological presence or response. And one of the things that happens when your heart truly breaks for someone, something more than just you read an internet meme that was sentimental, but when you see someone whose heart is breaking and you're there in their presence and they're looking for comfort and you know you have zero words that can be said. You can sit and your stomach just begins to ache a little bit. There's just this heavy sinking feeling in your chest. That's the presence of compassion. And the ancients understood that. That's why they brought these two words together of something like bowels of mercy. It's intended to communicate a compassion that is deeply felt from the gut. Now, I know this sounds like I'm just being an etymology nerd here, but I think it has profound importance for our contemporary situation because it is much easier to hate other Christians right now than it is to love other Christians. And by that, I mean, we are all mostly taking our information from an echo chamber that echoes back our same convictions. And so it becomes easy to get irritated with other Americans, but also other Christians that believe differently than us. It stirs up anger. And so something deeper has to happen. This is not a conceptual mercy. It is it is more, but not less than a deep feeling. If we are to advance in our community to Christ, we must get comfortable with the powerful intuition of our emotions, and we must stop belittling them as weaknesses. We're cutting ourselves off from a part of who God made us to be as a means of connecting with him and with one another. Being moved emotionally, being an empath is not a weakness. We need you to show up and speak up because we need models of mercy that are not rooted in extended ideologies but are moved because you're moved by the spirit of God from deep within. So empaths, we need you. We shouldn't be little being intuitive with what we feel. This is a gift from our God. I 
That's why, personally, my goal for this season of my life, and I've really tried to begin using for this, and it's made me become a lot quieter. That's all that I've experienced from the experiment so far. My goal for this season of my life is to refuse to speak my opinion on the suffering of others until my gut aches for their situation. What is your policy about that? What's your conviction upon that? I don't have one. What do you mean? You're not aware of the, this concept? You're not aware of this reality? Yeah, I'm aware of it. I've seen articles. I've read the memes. But I've never sat and heard someone's story till it moved me to tears. And I'm not qualified to speak a conviction about that until I have put myself in that place where I'm able to enter in and suffer with them. Then maybe... I might have something to say. But if I don't have that, I should remain silent or just spend my opinions out in prayer, speaking them to God. Because there's no power in disconnected conviction that doesn't care about the person. It's only powerful if I've entered into that story. That's why we get situations, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna gripe, I'm gonna rant here for just a second and I'll repent. I love, the, I love the Catholic liturgy. Brothers and sisters, will you pray for me? Um, no, I'm not going to go there now. Let's, let's, let's move on. Sorry, I was going to make a conviction that I decided not to. I'm pulling it back. But I am going to confess that next week. But we won't have show it online, so... <laughs> No, no, we just, we, we have to be moved by the stories. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Um, being in this particular position is really unique. Um, I don't recall lots of meetings where I went back to my doctor or my dentist or my mechanic or my lawyer and said, I need to take you out to lunch, lawyer, doctor, mechanic. You know, I just noticed in some of the ways that you were doing the job that I was paying you for, I looked at some Wikipedia articles. I just don't really think that you're approaching this in the best way. But let me send you a quick link to a Wikipedia article about how some other mechanics are doing this or how other doctors, and, and you might want to adapt that into your practice. Now, here's the reason why I love that people interact with me that way, because it means members of our community care about our community. So don't misunderstand me. This isn't a way of preempting difficult conversations. I welcome them. But what I am saying, what often happens in the disconnect there is that people are giving me advice on how to handle people that I've spent hours weeping with as I have come to understand the context in which they find themselves bound by their sin. And it's not that in principle, the things that I'm told are necessarily wrong, but I know they're completely ineffective because that's not what this person needs to hear right here, right now. Now, I am saying that's exactly how I have always lived my life until I was in this job and it started to change me. I started to realize I don't say anything with the phrase, well, you know what you ought to do to someone anymore. Because the problem is I get advice on what I ought to do from people that have never looked into the eyes of the people we're talking about. 
and that doesn't work. You have no wisdom to speak unless you've heard the story and walked with them. Then maybe, even if there is corrective to be spoken, that's the only context in which it is effective. That's harder. It takes a lot longer. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate the air clap. <laughs> um, so, so that's compassion, kindness. The Greek word translated kindness is actually derived. It's one of these words that has a that derives from a root word that means grace. In other words, being kind is not simply being a quote peacekeeper and being nice. It means to show grace or to be gracious. Now look at the context of this verse. Remember in verse 3, he said, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The only way to cultivate a community that celebrates diversity, it, that celebrates diversity as the mosaic of God is by practicing grace toward those whose beliefs and lifestyles are offensive or off-putting to us. Some of the things you choose to do are off-putting to me. And some of the things I do ought to be off-putting to you. You know why? Because we are all imperfect people on this journey together trying to support one another in our journey to Christ's likeness. But if we're not honest about our brokenness, our weakness, and our sin with one another, then we can't ever get around to actually speaking truth to one another. So... It's not eradicating offense is not the goal. It is learning how to love in the presence of offense. That's the goal. Being nice is easy, but actually extending grace to someone offensive is really hard work. In fact, I would say it's supernatural work because it's only the presence of the living Christ who's gone to hell and conquered death. That's the only way through which I can do that sometimes. And I know it's the only way that others have been able to do that with me. But it's just about learning how to extend grace to one another. Gentleness is the attitude with which we serve one another. Patience, again, this virtue implies that coexisting in a diverse community is challenging for all of us. Thus, we must be prepared to grow in patience toward one another if we are to, consist, if we are to be consistently gracious toward one another. Can I just say this as a collective acknowledgement? My deepest relational pain and confusing moments of rejection have 100% only come by the hands of Christians. My non-believing friends have never betrayed and hurt me the way my Christian friends have. Now, a lot of us use that as an excuse to withdraw from Christian community. If it's enough to get you out, you might as well go on now. I think there's gonna be new seasons of Stranger Things dropping, and maybe you can do that on Sunday mornings. Because I promise you, to engage into community is to put yourself in the place to be offended by somebody else. It's to put yourself in a position where you have to exercise grace, compassion, and forgiveness toward other people. This is not a reason to leave the faith or to leave the church. It's confirmation for why we all need the living Christ. And we learn that through 
the challenge of community. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This is not a soft and easy process. It's not a fun process for those two pieces of metal to be clanging and creating sparks. But it is a necessary one. See, these virtues create a vision of the practical expressions of love, and not just any love, but love born from a mutual vision of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. As we said earlier, love is our commitment to one another, expressed as presence and advocacy in our journey toward Christ-likeness. And finally, he says, bearing with one another, again, extrapolating this idea, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So again, once again, this is a realistic counsel that's necessary for, for community. I mean, just that phrase, you said, what's it say? This bear with one another. I just don't even like how that sounds. You know, that means tolerate one another's annoyances and weaknesses. That's what it means. It sounds a lot more comforting to say, bear with one another. It, what it means is put up with one another. That's what it means. So sometimes part of community is these wonderful uh, uh, experiences and expressions that we like to celebrate, but sometimes being part of Christianity, sometimes the, the, the thing that's necessary to move you to a deeper maturity in your journey to Christ's likeness is have to put up with someone that annoys you. That's their gift to you. So for about 35% of you, I would like to say you're welcome. Hopefully I got the numbers right. <laughs> We have to tolerate the weaknesses of one another. From where do we take our cue for our tolerance of one another? <laughs> From the Lord's tolerance as of us in our weakness. Paul's not fighting fair here. I get it. I'm offended too. I'm mad too. I would not get Paul a Reuben this week. The standard for bearing with and forgiving one another is, look at that phrase, just as the Lord forgave you. And again, he doesn't use a typical word for forgiveness. He uses a word that means more than forgive. It means to extend graciousness as an act of grace. We are called to be as gracious with others as God is with us. And if we do that, we will put on love, which will unify us all together. So as we get ready to conclude, as the worship team maybe quietly makes their way up here. I want to close for just a few minutes on some thoughts. Number one, that the only way, and this is really critical, and we touched on this at the beginning, the only real way to be free of the vices listed earlier in this chapter is to choose a lifestyle that enables the virtues listed in this paragraph to flourish in our lives and in our community. Remember, it's not just taking off of the old, it is the putting on of the new. If you just take off the old, I promise you, you'll go digging, digging after those clothes after a while because it's too cold and awkward to be naked. That is not the goal is to stop take, just to take off the old. It is to embrace and walk in what is new. That's the calling. And it's been my, this is my big frustration in living in, work, in living in churches and working in churches. There's so much of a vision for what we're to be against and what we're not supposed to do. But where is the dynamic visions of who we are and what we're called to be? That's what really transforms us. That's what changes us. 
The goal is not to be religious. The goal is to faithfully follow Jesus. The way we know we are faithfully following Jesus is if the fruit of the Spirit is the atmosphere of our living, the atmosphere of our being. There is no salvation in Christ apart from being progressively transformed in the image of Christ. And so, what is my application? My application is simply a pastoral plea to make it your ambition to become competent and proficient in the practicing kindness as an extension of grace. Now, take a moment to examine your practice of kindness every single day. Do not attempt to be kind. I'm not talking about gritting your teeth and white knuckling it. I'm talking about taking time to keep in step with the Spirit in every single one of our relational interactions. I see a lot of people here that this application might not get beyond the person that shares your bedroom. That's fine, wherever it needs to be. But what I am saying is we can bounce out of the old habits, I mean, the old patterns of argument and instead become people who listen and respond to the voice of the Spirit in the crisis of our relational interactions. The crisis of the kingdom happens in the offense of relationships. That's why we need community, my friends. We need the relational crisis of community for it is the only way of experiencing the, true, the fruit of true Christ-centered transformation. I don't know what my devotion to God is simply in the evaluation of the privacy of my own devotional times. Where it's manifested is in the crisis of learning how to be community with other people. We need each other and we need our imperfections because the Holy Spirit's using them to make us like Jesus.